Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the CoachCast. I have a little bit of a warning to announce before today's show begins, and that is you usually don't hear cuss words on the show, but this episode has a few, so this is just a bit of a warning. Today I have two special guests on the show who make up a powerful husband and wife team. Leslie Patterson and Simon Marshall are my guests today, and they are co-authors of a wonderful sports psychology book called The Brave Athlete, Calm the Fuck Down and Rise to the Occasion. Leslie Patterson is a three-time off-road triathlon world champion, Ironman champion, pro mountain biker, and co-founder of Braveheart Coaching. Leslie's husband, Simon Marshall, has a PhD and is a former professor of family and preventive medicine at UCSD and a professor of sport and exercise psychology at San Diego State University. He has also been a team sports psychologist for the World Tour Cycling Team, BMC. Not only are they co-authors of this great book, but they are also co-founders of Braveheart Coaching. So feel free to check out their website, braveheartcoach.com. I hope you enjoy the show and gain some tips that can help your mental game. Hey, thanks, Simon and Leslie, for joining me here today. Hey, how's it going, Dirk? Yeah, great to, nice to meet you, Dirk. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, it's going good here, really good. I mean, you know, the world could be in a better place, but we're trying to make the most of it, right? Exactly. <laughs> are you are you in Boulder? I'm in, I'm in Boulder. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's smoky off and on here just because of the fires. Yeah. Um, out of California, we have our own local fires here. Um, but yeah, Boulder's uh, been a been a good place to kind of hunker down. Oh yeah, oh it's just so gorgeous. You know, I think that's been one of the the biggest keys, certainly for for both of our mental healths, is to be getting outside in the mountains and enjoying the scenery around us here in in, in California and San Diego, and that really just kind of lightens the mood and gets you perspective every day. You know. Well, you guys have the ocean as well to kind of uh, yep. I don't know ease things, and so it's all about trying to be happy, right? And uh, hopefully yeah. we can help some more people kind of find that happiness place. You guys wrote The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion. Obviously, there's a little bit of a, I don't know, a harsh word in there. And this <laughs> is everybody's last warning, you know, that some some other um, bad words might come out in this interview. Um, so if you are driving and you have the young ones in the back seat, I won't be offended if you hit pause right now and come back to this uh, recording later. Um, but yeah, does that is that the way that every single one of your interviews starts? Is <laughs> oh, a well, yeah. well, some of them, some of them. I but I mean, you know, I'm Scottish. They expect that, right? You know, you're you're not a true <laughs> Scots uh, Scots lassie unless you can drop a few f bombs here and there. But we won't. We <laughs> we we can uh, clean up our language. Don't worry. <laughs> no, it's all good. Everybody's warned. We can have we can have fun now. Your your book is definitely a fun read. Um, tell me why you wrote the book. I think we can all make our own assumptions here, but I'd, I'd love to hear it from your perspective. You know what got you to write this book and why? Yeah, I think it's it, it's been a really uh, fascinating journey, and it, it kind of started with. 
um, my sort of genesis as an athlete, so to speak. You know, I grew up in uh, Scotland, obviously, and in the world of triathlon, everything was, you know, sports science based. I was on the national programs, uh, you know, vying for the Olympic team, all that good stuff. And um, what I found was everything was was based around data and, and really they didn't talk to me as a person. And as a consequence, I got really disillusioned with the sport and find myself not really understanding why I couldn't maximize my potential because the numbers, you know, they weren't always there in testing, but they could be there in races. And, you know, I was just one of those real sort of gutsy, heart-driven athletes. And so fitting into the system wasn't working for me. So I just thought, well, that's it. I'm never going to be good enough. They've told me I need to do X, Y, and Z to be a world champion. And so that's not panning out. So therefore, I can't be a world champion. And, um, you know, and then and then I moved to California with with Sai. He got a job here as a professor at San Diego State University. And I jumped into the world of um, of actually acting and theater and all of the creative arts and really, I guess, just kind of learned who I was as a person, got got dug deep down into how do I function and what is it about for me and came back to the sport a second time uh, and just in a totally different headspace. It was going to be my journey and I was going to find out the way that I worked mentally and physically. And luckily, you know, my husband's a sports psychologist. So all of the stuff I was testing out from a mental capacity, I'd come home and talk with him and um, you know, it, it, he really sort of opened up the, the curtain of the science for me and helped me understand why these things were working for me. But, but the interesting thing is that I, at the time that Leslie was going through her own sort of existential crisis in, as an athlete, I was going through my own as a sports psychology, a sports psychologist in training, because back in back in the day, not saying how old I am, <laughs> but when when sports psychology was really housed in sports science departments and psychology departments in in universities, you're taught from textbooks, and there are there are some option uh, uh, sort of. Um, uh, uh, opportunities to do internships and work with athletes, but it was still sort of a, a really a tough entry point to get into real pe- to talk to real humans, right? So, so a lot of the things that I found when I learned through Baptism of Fire that many of the techniques that we were being trained in just weren't resonating with with real humans, right? With with real people, with athletes, and some of them, of course, would never tell you this, but you just learn that, and, and some of them, you know, most of us as students back in the day weren't even sure whether we believed it, you know, what we were saying, even though there was some evidence for it and so on. And so really it was this combination of meeting, you know, I, I always say that one of the best things that made me as, as a, a sports psychologist or improve as a sports psychologist was kind of peeking behind the curtain by marrying into elite the sport right so i really got to see the crazy well not <laughs> that they're her words not mine but they're true um uh, was really to see that there had to be a shift both in how psychology was done applied psychology was done with athletes and what real athletes needed and wanted and that that sort of interface is more of a more of a sort of a it was probably a, more of a battleground uh, really represented our book and so many of the techniques that we sort of evolved start in evidence-based science but then really have been shaped and sculpted from the real input from real people who are competing and that really reflects that and right down to the titles in fact all the chapter titles they're that they're, they're phrased as real things that athletes have said to us so in other words we wanted to take this for want of a better word phenomenological approach oh my god I even hate myself for saying that word but but what this really means is to say what does it feel like as an athlete and even though they don't know that they're talking about stress management or, 
you know, managing you know, central nervous system or autonomic nervous system activity, but they'll say, I need to harden the F up or I need this and that. And then, and then really finding ways to talk and export the science into language that athlete resonated with real people was the key. Right. So who were you writing this book for? It was, it was really... Um, Marriage counselling. <laughs> 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 it was for all of those endurance athletes out there with de that, that deal with these problems. And ironically, what we found is it's actually translated into pretty much anyone and ev everyone that is either active or not even active. We've had people that are not athletes that have read the book and a lot of the um, a lot of the elements in there have really resonated and helped them too. So, you know, building a brain mental model of why we have thoughts and feelings that we don't want, I mean, really that could be applied to anything in life, um, business, relationships, you know, all of those things. So um, I guess it started out as writing it for both our athletes and any other endurance athletes that we had an inkling they were going through the same things as all of the athletes that we coach, myself included. Um, and then it's just kind of really built. Yeah, and I, I mean, I started writing little, like, not blog posts, but sort of one to two pages for our own athletes about anxiety and nerves and panic and with, with swimming and all these sorts of topics. And then after a while... Um, it was like maybe that we've got sort of a book here, and then when when we um, spoke to Velopress about it, uh, who originally actually asked us about a book about training methodology versus you know mind training, we mm -hmm. talked about our philosophy and that, and it really pivoted to that, and so that's been the sweet spot I think that we found. It's trying to treat the the athletes as sort of a whole. The mind is not separate from the body, <laughs> uh, and that's really been our selling point yeah, as coaches okay. now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if we dig into some more of the uh, practical applications of the book, you, you break down, if you will, the brain into three brains. I've certainly heard the concept around chimp before, um, but you bring up two others. Can you kind of uh, help explain the, the, you know, the chimp, the professor, the computer, how these things are different? Yeah, sure. Now, the, the caveat um, for all of this, as I'm sure you're, you're familiar with when, you, when we talk about sort of exporting really complicated science, even that, you know, not just that we don't fully understand, but neuroscientists don't understand, you know, into something that makes practical sense. You have to, you have to do a little bit of fudging of science, right? This is part of the yeah. art of science communication and the use of metaphor. And, and there is still some controversy over using this sort of dual model or, or, or tripartite model of the brain that we've got these little pieces in our head that do different roles. And, and, and one thing, one lesson that we've learned in, the, in probably in the last five years with neuroscience is that really the big mistake is to conflate anatomy with function. So in other words, we now know that specific areas in the brain are not only responsible for job A, B, and C, and then you know the other part, it does this. They're all kind of a, a, a series of interconnected pathways. So the brain really works on pathways and algorithms versus sort of you know tasks and places. That said, uh, we've then uh, taken, uh, adapted different sort of uh, metaphors for thinking about the brain, because our goal as well was to try and help give real tools to athletes that they would understand. And even if we have to fudge science, or at least not say fudge, but sort of like simplify, simplify uh, right. and in doing so. So the, 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 the three brain system is, as most people have heard of, the chimp brain or the lizard brain or the reptilian brain or whichever, the elephant, whichever the author okay. you're reading about. This isn't new. And this is 
First off is the limbic system, which is a bit smaller than an avo- a small avocado, right in the center of your head and your brain. And this is the oldest part of our brain. And it's really goal is to sort of keep us alive, to make sure that we keep moving in response to environmental demands on us. It's where all our emotions come from. It's where the fight or flight response comes from. And it, and it doesn't really think and act like a normal uh, uh, adult. It doesn't use facts and logic. And I say it. Uh, this part of our brain doesn't really have our uh, pathways that rely on facts and logic. It's impulses and urges. And so we call this a chimp. And uh, and, and the, one of the reasons we call it a chimp is simply because when you think of a sort of a, a young primate that's prone to tend to tamper, tamper tantrums, that's, that's, that's a word, <laughs> temper tantrums, uh, that you can't really use, it's like a, a tantruming toddler in a grocery store and you're just using bribery to get them to calm down and using, you know, our, our logic isn't going to work. And, and, our, and our chimp brain really does that. Now, if you sort of move forward in the head, in the skull, to the frontal cortex, this is the kind of wrinkly part in the front third of our head, called the frontal cortex, and the part even further forward, the prefrontal cortex, um, is really where all these what we call executive functions happen. So this is the stuff that makes us smart and be able to think. So when we think about who we are, what we like doing, our preferences, our hopes and dreams, we can think about our own thinking. This is all happening in our frontal cortex. So when we think about our personalities or what we're like as people when you talk to someone, it's really frontal cortex activity. So we call that brain the professor brain because it really relies on facts and logic. And much of our much of the mental anguish that we have in life is really a fight between these two brains, right? On the one hand, you've got some a part of our the chimp that just wants to have its basic urges and needs met. Uh, I want food, so eat food. I want pleasure, so get pleasure, and so on. And then the frontal cortex, which is a bit more of our social conscience and careful planning, deliberate decision making, and so on, moral guidance, and so on. But then the third part of our brain, and this is the part that doesn't really fit in a specific location, back to the sort of the caveat about pathways and conflating function and anatomy, is is what we call in the computer brain. The computer brain is a bit like kind of a memory hard drive, and it really starts off, it doesn't really start off as a completely blank slate, but it's really where our memories are stored. I mean, there are specific parts in the brain that we know where those, that, those things happen, but for the sake of metaphor, the computer brain really is where all our autopilots are stored. So things that we, we do when we don't really have to think about them, how that we can talk and, and, and uh, walk at the same time, or drive and talk at the same time, or just things, habits are all in the, in, in the confines of the computer brain and that's really where memories are stored as well and information from the computer brain is being put there by the chimp or the professor so for example if you have really got bad uh, test anxiety as a kid in school and you go into in britain uh, school gymnasiums where all their desks were set up six feet apart and so you get a memory of being in a school gymnasium of and you can maybe go back there as an adult and you still feel and get those same reactions because the memories are brought up by the computer brain to help the chimp and the professor make a decision or at least negotiate a decision on what their human should do so really these fights now and most of the mental anguish that we have represents both the fight between these urges from our chimp, the sort of sensibleness of our professor, but confounded or at least introduced by memories that we have, habits, good and bad, that constantly sort of derail us or help us. So really the book is about techniques and strategies that help us manage that that conflict between the three because they're all still working towards the same goal, which is wanting to make you a healthy, happy human. Right. And, and you talk about helping people recognize which brain is in control and being able to switch to the brain that's better for the moment. 
Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's one of the key, one of the starting like entry points for us is that we we often say to athletes, "Have you ever had thoughts and feelings that you don't want?" And if you in a room, and you know, ninety percent will put their hands up, and ten percent won't, and then we we have a joke about, "Well, you guys are lying because everyone has thoughts and things they don't want." And then it's a question of trying to figure out, well, right now in the context I am, I'm on the start line or I'm about to take a test or go on a first date or prepare dinner or take my kids to wherever, do I want to think and feel like I am right now? And if the answer is no, you've probably been hijacked by your chimp brain, right? Because this reflecting, having the right thought and a right emotion at the right time that's pertinent to what's demanded of you that's going to get you through it efficiently and blah blah is really uh when the two are working in not in conflict but in harmony so uh we start with you know when you're in situations and you're not sure whether sports psychology or some of these tools can help you just ask yourself the question do i would i like to think or feel any differently and one of the most common we get particularly for triathletes is you know, they're on the morning of a race. Oh my God, why do I do this to myself? I hate this. This is such an awful experience. Why do I, I don't want, I want to feel excited. I want to feel, you know, happy and can't wait to get going. And some people do feel like that, but many don't. And so their probably chimp brain is running the show right up until the start line, right? And so how do we, and, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why or the consequences of that that can derail people or make the experience not as enjoyable as it can be. So that's really yeah. the entry point for us. Right. And I mean, that, that comes down to, I mean, self-confidence. You say the number one psychological skill for an athlete to possess is self-confidence. And that's more, you know, not being uh, horrible outside to other people, but more the internal sense of building that acceptance and, and feeling like an athlete. You certainly come in, you know, come in contact with your athletes that don't have that athlete ID, how do you help them through that and actually feel like they are deserving? They are an athlete. Yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, you you probably have uh, you know experienced. All coaches have experienced this. The the archetypal athlete. Would well, you coach people as slow as me? And I, I'm I'm not an athlete. I'd like to become an athlete, but they're already training and racing and so on. You know, and and the way that we think and feel about ourselves, the identity of the hats that we wear in life represent um, an identity. Psychologists simply call them identities. And underneath these identities are what they call self-schema, which all that means is that the thoughts and beliefs that prop up that identity. And so all of us in life don't, well, very few of us in life have one identity. I'm only this and nothing else. We're, we're parents and partners and wives and husband employees and athletes and all the different hats we rock, that we wear. But each of these identities often has some gremlins or faulty logic and how they see themselves. And one of the, the ways that we work on first, particularly with athletes who we listen to how they talk about their own athleticism and the words people choose to use or the words they don't or the, or the context of the words they don't choose um, tells you everything about their athletic identity. And so the reason athletic identity is so important is because it's such a big predictor of persistence, of motivation, of sort of continued like a stick to itness. Um, and, and Leslie's a good example of this. Her identity yeah, it, has really matured over the years, yeah, athletically. Absolutely. It's, it, it's been a really interesting journey for me. I mean, when I got back into the sport the second time and had moved to California, I find it really difficult to call myself a professional athlete because deep mm. down I didn't feel I deserved it. Like that mm -hmm. kind of title was was I, I wasn't good enough to represent that, and and that came from a whole host of things. I mean, I'm from a culture where, you know, professional sport is quite different, or you talk yourself down, or you know, all of those kinds of a thing coming from Scotland. Um, and it was really interesting moving here to California and seeing 
people talk quite differently about themselves over here. There's an underlying confidence, whether that's right or wrong or whether it's really true. Um, but people talk about kind of how good they are. Oh, I, you know, I won this right. race and I did that and da da da. And, and so I started to adopt some of that myself, like talking about myself, just even if I didn't believe it, um, saying, no, I'm a professional athlete, you know, and bit by bit, you can kind of build this identity. And the more that I committed to um, uh, training and the process of and, you know, the, 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 the kind of mastery of my craft, the more I built up this identity. And again, I think it was all based around fear that really was I good enough to call myself a professional um, so I kind of reframed that a lot with the help of Sai to focus on, you know, being a professional athlete is about mastering your craft the best that you can. You can't control the outcome. Yeah. And right. I think, and again, I think it all comes back to, there's nothing magical about thinking and feeling, you know, like you are a good athlete or a writer or a singer or whatever. But because the, the reason we're interested in it is because what it predicts and from a behavioral perspective. And so this is, and you can imagine, like I, I, I always think back to Leslie on the start line when I first met her and she didn't feel like an athlete or didn't want to call herself fresh athlete. Of course, that's going to dictate very, very, you know, specific things like where you stand on the start line. I want to stand at the back versus at the front, mm. right? So it's, it's having right. a direct impact on how you perform. And so... Um, the, 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 good, the good news is that, okay, you can just sort of tell people, stand there, whether you feel you've earned it or not. But the best yeah. way is to tr encourage this internal sense of this is who I am, this is what I want, this is how I'm going to try and get it. And also, that is self-sustaining. Yeah, reverse engineering it as well, changing your behaviors to impact your thoughts about yourself. So, and, and we kind of chat about Fake that. until you make it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a great segue into this alter ego that we hear about Leslie has and Patty yeah. McGinty. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. You know, this detachment, this alter ego. Right. Um, anybody can have that. You don't have to have a high FTP or mm -mm. be an Iron Man to, to take advantage of this and, and actually, you know, internalize it. Big time. Um, you know, ultimately for me, coming from an acting background, it was about utilizing... Um, fi finding something, somebody, some kind of trigger that could help me change my behavior, which could help me change my thoughts and feelings. And so for me as a person, I was quite sort of um, uh, lacked a lot of confidence, quite meek. Um, no, 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 you go first, not very aggressive, was scared to really commit again with fear that, you know, I wasn't good enough or I, d or I didn't deserve it. So I started to look at other um, a, a characters, people, athletes that I felt embodied traits of the type of athlete that I felt I needed to be to maximize my potential from a, a mental and thus physical standpoint. So I uh, totally got into MMA fighting just because I, I love it. I love yep. the kind of uh, aggression, the confidence, the personalities. And, uh, and so started to watch a lot of Conor McGregor. And I was mm. like, God, mm -hmm. this dude is like, he's so confident. Like the <laughs> swagger he has, like he doesn't give a shit what anyone thinks of him. And man, imagine being like that. And, and again, that's probably partly his alter ego too, right? But 
Anyway, so I started to kind of look at the way that he walked, the way that he spoke, the type of music that he listened to, and started to embody some of that, uh, you know, during training. Um, I would do this weird thing with my fists. I would do this thing with my eyes where I'd get this intense focus because he sort of does this too, where it's like blinding stare where you're just looking through someone. And so every time I would do an interval, I'm like, I'm just going to blind stare ahead of me. And if anyone talks to me, I ain't talking to them. And so... It just sort of morphed into this whole, you know, alter ego that I had. Um, and now I have a specific set of protocols that I go through before big training sessions, certainly before big events, utilizing visuals, videos, music, anything that's going to get me into this character. Um, you know, and it's the classic fake it till you make it. And now there's neuroscience <laughs> to show why that actually has an impact. And what's been mm. really fascinating for me is because this is a great example of when we talked about, you know, what we're trained in in school, the psychologist, and then you meet athletes, is that there's nothing about alter egos in sports psychology, nothing. But there is, if you look in psychotherapy, about thinking of yourself in the third person and what that does. And psychologists have even... You know, there's whole schools of research about embodied cognition and, and so on. And and so taking science, so it's not just sort of dress up, make believe. We're actually, you know, as, as we learn more about the brain and our nervous system and how it controls our thoughts and feelings and behavior, um, we know now that we can reverse engineer that process. So the model that psychologists have used for close to 100 years has always been thought, it's a trickle-down model of thoughts, influence, feelings, influence, behavior, cognition, affect, behavior. This is why most cognitive behavior therapy and a lot of therapy starts with patterns of thinking but it's only really in the last sort of 10 years that we've realized that you can actually by acting a certain way you can impact how you feel which impacts how you think so you can reverse engineer the process and there is the neurochemical and neural there's neural evidence for this now published and so so taking these examples, um, and not not to the sort of just the, the, the ridiculous extreme, we give some examples in our book about the Superman pose, and you know if you stand in the power pose for two minutes and blah 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 happens. But this is really about taking anything that you're a bit nervous or scared about, and saying, well, maybe I don't have to spend ten years of intensive psychotherapy to be, or a full frontal lobotomy to be the athlete that I thought mm -hmm. I could be or wanted to be. You can just fake it, and eventually things start to turn around. There's a reason. You'll never find a boxer in before a fight saying, uh, well, if you know, do you think you're going to win? Well, if I fire, I, I'm hoping it turns out they're saying I'm going to win. And even if there's even if you know they've got no chance, they've got to believe that because right. if you let you. So this is a really good tool for athletes, particularly those that really come with a lot of existing sort of anxiety or nervousness or poor or immature athletic identities you say well let's the first thing we can do is let's find your character your alter ego and this is pretty you know lots of performers have these and and it's kind of a fun little thing to do but when you start to present the neuroscience behind it they get much more buy-in than wait you're asking me to like pretend i'm somebody that sounds so juvenile i don't want to do that but it's amazing how many people actually do do that yeah no absolutely i it brought me back to my pro days and rage against the machine, you know, uh, yeah. you know, that was my number one thing to put on the headphones. And then, you know, changing your mindset for being the, you have to be a parent, you have to be a spouse. You're five minutes until start time, right? But then somehow you have to snap out of that right. being the parent and become the racer. And I think that's where, you know, everyone, we call it a pre-race routine, right? And that's quite a classic thing mm. in sports psychology. And I think that part of that uh, pre-race routine is getting into my alter ego and it's certain things that are going to trigger that. So you've got to allow yourself 
um, time slots to both change into and change out of um, that alter ego because Paddy McGinty ain't so fun to be around if you're my husband, you know what I'm saying? So it's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I used, um, you know, the physical drive, getting from training back to home and the walk up the stairs into our apartment as my shift, you know, okay, this is where I shift into. And, you know, you make a deliberate change in your behavior and that kind of clicks you out of it. So um, I think it, it really behoofs, you know, certainly amateur athletes that are dealing with a lot of different hats that they have to wear before races, often kids, job, work, all the rest of it, giving yourself enough space to be able to transition in and out. Otherwise, you're not going to be effective at either. Mm-hmm. And, and the human right. brain is wired to be attracted to identi- like different identities. This is, you know, tribal mentality and not just in in you know in politics and or, or every sort of team sports but you we see that now in the triathlon world all the the clubs and the the ambassador teams you've got the branding of sort of the Watty Inc or the mm-hmm. sort of Bettys or the, you know they they all have very distinct personalities and people gravitate to that it's your tribe it's your in group and that's the so i think you can do that on an individual mm-hmm. level as well and i mean the mm-hmm. psychology of it is pretty similar um, and mm-hmm. we just encourage people to try and think of it. And this is great as well for young athletes, that those athletes who are in their tweens or teens and they're struggling with anxiety or race nerves. And this is a really, a really successful technique I've used, especially with younger athletes, because they get this immediately. And they can draw on, they find it much easier to draw on characters that they would like to be like than adults do. Adults really struggle to say, oh, well, I don't really know, like thinking about a cartoon character or a film character or someone they know. But kids can do that, like they can give you 20 of them off the bat immediately. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. So then you get into this concept of attention versus concentration. and And I love that, you know, and the performance relevant attention and you know, and I'm going through a whole lot here, but then it evolves into these narrow and broad attention, internal, external attention. And I could relate to that, but it was never explained to me before and realizing how switching between them um, can be of value. Can you help me better understand that? And I, I truly, I feel like we should be sitting down over a pint right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. Because because I've got four pages of notes here, and I'm going to get through like one of them. So um, I'll sit back and let you talk. Yeah. So attention and concentration. I'll just use those for the moment interchangeably. Are is a really fascinating topic. So one one of the things that we know, for example, is as we get more alert, that fight or flight, that sympathetic nervous system, adrenaline is pumping. Our attention gets narrower and narrower. And so there's a good evolutionary reason for that is because, you know, your brain is a survival mechanism. Sorry, it's not a very good survival mechanism to be able to be, you know, distracted when you have to be laser focused on something that's about to eat you or kill you. Right. So Mm -hmm. we're given this attentional or or, uh, um, uh, visual neuroscientists call it foveation when you this sort of this narrowing of attention right down into the thing that really matters unfortunately when adrenaline gets really high and this fight or flight response gets in gets kicks in into high gear so we get over aroused or over alert your attention becomes so narrow that you start to exclude things that are extremely relevant right this is the person running out of t2 with their helmet still on or you know that we've all done some version of this or making just schoolboy errors uh, that beginners make and uh, or, or, or you know and, and they're all a function of over arousal and a narrowing of attention so we start to exclude what we call task relevant information as well and this is again drafting penalties a lot of the time explained by that and, and all the kinds of mental errors we make in 
in sport. And so one one model to help understand a concentration or attention, attention uh, is the how psychologists refer to it, is really think of it in two dimensions. You've got a width dimension, which is narrow uh, to broad, so I can be scanning the room versus focusing on that you know, picture in front of me. So I, all of our attention is on that continuum at some, at some point. And then the other continuum is internal, external. I can be focusing on things inside my own head, thoughts I'm having, or the fact that I'm hungry or bored, or oh my God, when will this be over? Or I can be external. I'm almost going to catch them. Or what is that red there? Is that a stop sign? Or is that, is that, is that the summer so-and-so I thought I know from when, way back when in college or something? So, and when you plot these two dimensions in crosshairs or orthogonally, you get these four quadrants. So, for example, a narrow internal attention is like obsessive thinking about, oh my god, did I lock the car? Did I lock, did I lock the car? And on the other, on the other extreme, you've got a broad external. So now I'm sort of scanning. Where's my bike? I'm running into T1, and I've like, I, I can't remember where I've left it. I'm just scanning, scanning, scanning. I'm outside of my own head, and. The important point to remember about these attentional channels, like because they're like TV channels, is that you can only be in one of them at once. You can't. The science of multitasking is telling us that you can't really. You don't have picture in picture, right, in the human brain, but you can switch these channels very, very quickly, and that's what some of the skills training enables us to do. But there are some. There are some uh, demands in sport that require you to be in one channel, right? If I am focused on catching somebody, I need to be in a narrow external channel. Or I'm looking for the release. If I'm a baseball, uh, if I'm wait, look, trying to read the pitch of a, uh, of a pitcher, I need to really pay attention to where his hand is and how, where the seam looks and so on. So, and likewise, I sometimes need to be really aware of where my competitors are or whether, where I, if I'm going to get a drafting penalty, I have to have a, na- a fairly broad external attention. And what often happens is that when we get nervous, as our attention narrows, we get stuck in one of those channels. And the channel that we get stuck in is the one that we is our sort of home happy place channel. So my happy place channel is an internal broad. It's thinking, planning, analyzing, which is, serves me really well uh, for my professional life. But if I get really nervous in sport, the sorts of decisions, well, not even in sport, in anything, the sorts of errors I'm going to make are paralysis by analysis i'm going to make no decision because i'm so busy thinking through all the combinations of what could go wrong what could go right where leslie is just like you know bull in a china stop get stuck in Mm -hmm. and figure it out so we get stuck in our channel so one of the exercises is one recognizing what your go-to channel is and there are some little questions that we can ask people are you like a, a street smart person or do you like to to really like think through things through or so on. There's some questions we can help. And once you figure that out, you know that that's both your strength and your kryptonite. So we then look at the demands of their sport and say, okay, when is this channel going to start to make you become unraveled, right? So if you are a narrow internal thinker and you need to descend really fast on a road bike, the decisions you're likely to make, you're probably not going to read the road very well, right? Because you're so concerned about all the things, oh my God, center of gravity low and counter steering and all the other things. So so we have to try and get you out of that channel. And the best way to do that is to be relaxed because it forces open as that stress response relaxes, uh, that forces open our attentional field so we can switch, we can change the channel a lot easier and a lot quicker. There's real consequences to not being able to switch what channel you're in. You know, the, the first example I think about is maybe summing someone coming into a feed zone and all they're thinking about is that particular bottle, how much they have to drink, and then taking the sodium 
pill afterwards or something, right? And this, that, that, it's all internal narrow. And then bam, they didn't realize they were running into somebody else, you know, in front of them on the bike and they crash and now they have road rash, right? Um, Right. So being able to quickly like, oh, okay, I I know I need to do this, but hey, what's going on around me? You know, I'm quickly back and forth, realize that. And that comes through, you know, simulation. I mean, race simulation, sea races, seeing others do it. It it does. Uh, And it also requires that you put athletes, you engineer circumstances where it requires one of those channels. And then you give them another task during a training session where they have to use another channel. And hmm. the other the thing about channel switching is not just it's a good skill to have to be able to cope with the demands when you need when you need to, um, but it also changes your perception of time, right? So when you are right. think think of it like you take your brain is taking say for for for, for argument's sake for this example only like forty pictures a second of the world around you. Either some of them are inside your own head, some of them are broad, some of them are narrow. And when you're in only one channel, all forty pictures are being taken in that channel. So time is going to have a sense of slowing down, right? So this is what flow state is, when you're completely absorbed in that thing that you need to focus on and everything feels you've got enough time. But when you're either really distracted or you're darting around because your anxiety, you know, my home channel is this, but I'm around the expo and I'm looking at that and that, and then this is happening and the horns are going off and did I lock my car? And you're switching around these channels (laughs) as well then you're taking, say, 10 pictures in each channel. So every time you're in one of those channels, time is going to feel like it's really speeding up and you won't be able to take the time. So the the advantage of being in the channel that you're supposed to be in has a sense of slowing time down. But if you get too nervous and too anxious and you get stuck in the channel, then, you you know, this is like the clock watching, then you kind of, it it isn't just making time slow down, which is I can make good decisions. I'm now bored. When will this be over? Oh my God, will this completely hurry up and be over? You're right. So strategies for pain management often help revolve around switching channels, right? So it makes right. the, the thing go quicker. Hey, great. I love that you said that. Yeah, pain management. We haven't said one single cuss word yet. So <laughs> we, have, we, have, we have a chapter called Harden the Fuck Up, I believe. Um, uh, and another great quote, quote I love here, Eskimos have 50 words for snow, but endurance athletes have 51 uh, words for suffering. They probably have 5,001 ways of making up an excuse, right? <laughs> so, uh, Leslie, how about some of, uh, I don't know, just, you know, thoughts around methods and behaviors to help deal with, uh, that pain and harden the F up. Yeah. You know, I think for me, it really was seeking out tough challenges that, um, that, that were and are above and beyond what is going to be demanded of me in a race. So mm, basically right. putting myself you know, making myself as vulnerable as possible, choosing the craziest thing. It might not be the best physiological workout, but sometimes it's good to challenge your mental toughness. So, you know, taking that hill and say, you know what, it's the hardest hill in the whole San Diego County and I'm going to climb it 10 times. And everyone's like, Mm -hmm. what are you doing? Um, (laughs) So it's continually putting in your, well, not continually, it's choosing the right time to put yourself in that vulnerable position. And and I guess I've kind of spent my life doing that. I think it's something that I seek out um, because being in that sort of threshold of uncomfortableness for some reason I've gravitated towards and I've understood that I'm going to grow, learn and get better because of it. I mean, I started off in rugby playing in an all boys team. There was 250 boys and myself. And yet Mm -hmm. that was something I was drawn to at the age of seven, you know, 
Um, so it's definitely something that comes natural to me, but it's something I encourage with other athletes. A lot of people tend to do what feels comfortable. Um, but ultimately to get that growth, you have to do the things that feel uncomfortable um, and to grow and learn from those things. Uh, yeah, I, I think you can put yourself on a stage that you're not used to being within and nobody even knows you within that stage. If, if you are a triathlete, go out and do the local criterium, let's say, and nobody right. at that location even knows who you are, but you're out of your element and it doesn't matter how you do, you're pushing your, you're pushing your limits. How about meditation, uh, mindfulness? Yeah. I mean, meditation, well, that's a question for you. I think Les, do you do oh, meditation? Oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm um, just yeah. science answer. Yeah. I mean, so I'll jump into the science of it, but, but definitely I do. I think one of the hardest things as a endurance athlete is we kind of almost wish our lives away. Everything is about the future. It's all dictated by intervals and times and okay, when I get through this, it'll be okay. And then, okay, let's, you know, th then it's the rest and then it's the next rep. And once I get that interval done, I'll be done and I'll be happy. And everything's about the future. Um, and so what I've found is that um, I lost, certainly when, when things have gone really well, I've lost that sense of gratitude of being in the moment of truly soaking it all in and experiencing it. Um, so I've had to really address all of those things as I've gotten older and, and uh, uh, spend the time to acknowledge where I'm at and what does it mean to me, what my why is. And I think that's where um, some meditation practice, um, or for me specifically, um, I like sort of doing some hypnosis stuff um, or just deep relaxation. Uh, another, another thing that has really nourished my soul is just creativity. I'm a screenwriter and filmmaker. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. So having other things that, that keep me present, keep me in the in the, in the why of what it is that I'm doing. And, you know, that's a tough thing to find, I think, until you've been at the top and the, at the bottom. <laughs> so I've been, you know, at the top and I've been definitely at the bottom where, you know, with illness and injury. And so then it becomes gratitude. And, and that's where being in the moment uh, is a lot of an easier place to find when you're focused on gratitude. Yeah, that non-judgmental in the moment attention. I, I loved how you described that in the book, mm. um, Simon. Any, any? Uh, you guys recommend uh, an app? I believe uh, we do, uh, well. Yeah, we we. I mean, we don't we don't have any sort of affiliations, affiliations to any of these. Is that? But Headspace right. has been one that we've used. I've used Calm as well, and there's probably a, a, a bazillion more of these now. The ones that. The ones that we tend to like were, are both narrated, so you listen to somebody guiding you through things, and then usually having some connection to your breath, and your breath is so critical for managing your internal level of sort of agitation. Um, so finding anything, and you know, you don't need to have an app for that. You can like, there's lots of, um, uh, you can do sort of selfie. You can just think of things in, in a certain, you know, you put a timer on and you sit down and you can just have things to think about or noises or sounds or focusing on breath. So, but we like guided athletes tend to like guided, uh, meditations and it's usually apps are so simple because you can also measure them how many to how much you're doing and how frequently and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, uh, I hate to have to try and wrap this up. There's so much more I want to dig into. Um, you guys are presenting at Endurance Coach Summit, correct? Yes. We are. We're really excited. It's virtual uh, this year, so we won't get a chance to come to Colorado, unfortunately, but it will be virtual 
so yeah, we're going to be talking about coping and resilience and some strategies that um, particularly is mainly geared towards coaches and how we can how coaches can help their athletes. But of course, we're all sharing the same ingredients, the same kit, set of kits, so it helps coaches too. Um, so we'll be talking about strategies that help both in the very short term, things that you can do in 30 seconds to two minutes to really help athletes calm down, but then also having a longer term mental strategy or training in place to get people to be more resilient uh, yeah. to cope uh. with discomfort. Love it. Love it. Super. Uh, for those interested, please visit summit.trainingpeaks.com. You can sign up for the Endurance Coach Summit. That's actually November 17th to 19th, and it's free, so no excuses out there. Um, something that's not free is I definitely owe you guys, uh, I don't know if you're vegetarians or drink or not, but I uh, owe you a pint and a steak when you're <laughs> sometimes. So. We're, we're British. Are you kidding me? Do we drink? We're British. <laughs> that's a well a pint for sure oh you so thank you so much that was that was wonderful i've got four more pages so we'll meet again and <laughs> discuss it another time anytime thanks, Derek. Derek. Anytime. Nice. thanks for listening to the training peaks coach cast for more episodes visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts please head on over to spotify apple music or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe rate or leave a review until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. <laughs>